0: to greet you in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should not just be a normal greeting. That is why we're here for, we ask the question, why are we here for? Here in the name of the Lord Jesus, here to, uh, to hear God's word and be instructed like we were, instructed. On diligence, I uh, think I came across a saying one time that I remembered, success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I don't know if that ratio is correct, but it's largely correct. yet there was a work that we could not do. No matter how much we perspired, no matter how diligent we would have been or could be or try to be, there is a work that we could not do. The Lord Jesus Christ did that work. Pay for our sins. So as as we recognize that we have a responsibility, we need to recognize also what we can't do. And what the Lord does. It's a blessing to see you all here. It's a blessing. To come together. Look into your faces. I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. I know we're all at different places. And... um, At different experiences and right now we're in different places. Let's trust that the Lord will bring His people together. Let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful to You for doing what we could not do. It is Your grace that brings us here. Lord, all we did was respond to your wooing, what we did, Lord, was listen and answer your call. And we came, Lord, because you first loved us. And we came, Lord, because you first did the work. So I thank you, Lord, for that this morning. We want to worship you in that way this morning. We do pray, Lord, you would instruct us today out of your word clarify your will and purpose to us and give us give us your strength and your grace to live it out to walk it out to um, to be successful in what you call us to be in so Lord we thank you Let's pray, Lord, your blessing would be upon us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a number of verses, and your first assignment is for you to uh, determine what my subject will be before I tell you. You can turn, to, I'll give you to turn to one verse, but then I'll read a couple more verses. You can turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Romans sixteen sixteen. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. 1 Corinthians 16:19 to 20. Don't turn there. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet you one another with an holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13:11 to 13. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 25, and 26. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. First Peter 5, 14. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you, all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, what do you think the topic is? Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't know. It was sort of obvious. I don't know. I needed an answer. It's. uh, It was a simple question. I mean, it was a simple test. And I don't. It was never. We never had this topic here. I know we would have had it years ago, at Harmony. But the title is removing the agent landmarks. Or maybe it could see remove not the Ancient landmarks. Either way it could be. And uh, if you would turn to um, Proverbs well, you don't have to turn there, but Proverbs twenty two twenty eight says this remove not the agent landmark which our fathers have set. Now, any alert person will say, "What well, the ancient landmarks were intended for Israel. There was land boundaries put up when Israel came into the Promised Land. The, the land was divided up into tribes. This tribe got this portion of land. This tribe got this portion of land, and there were boundaries put up. They're permanent boundaries. <coughs> so." Is it wrong for me to use a verse like that in the Old Testament that was meant for Israel not to remove land boundaries and me to bring it in here and say don't remove the old landmarks? Is that a stretch for a preacher to do that? Well, I think I'm using the scripture as Apostle Paul did. In Deuteronomy 25, 4, there is a standalone verse. In context, it's a standalone verse. It reads, Thou shalt not muscle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. And if you would turn, and you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 10, there Paul is in the middle of arguing with the Corinthians. He's having a discussion, and he's trying to get a point across. He's trying to convince them of something. And he says here, Say I these things as a man? Am I just trying to persuade you like a man would? Or sayeth not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muscle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care of oxen? And we say, yes, he does. He cares about oxen. But then he says, or sayeth it he altogether for our sakes? And then Paul make the application, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, then he quotes another verse, he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Paul takes an Old Testament commandment and he applies it in a new covenant setting in a very beautiful way he goes beyond the bare bones chapter and verse method and instead applies the principles of God's heart. From there, he applies the principles of God's heart and brings it into a new covenant setting. He takes us from the work of an ox to the work of a minister or a missionary. That's what he does with that Old Testament verse. Talking about an ox, talking about don't muscle him, and he takes that and he applies it to this day and age, and he gives an application to ministry. That's not a stretch for the Apostle Paul, so I'm saying that shouldn't be a stretch for us. Now, in the case of ancient landmarks, God set the boundaries for the different tribes, like I mentioned, and those boundaries were not to be moved. And to ensure that those boundaries stay intact, he told them to marry only within their own tribes. Then, inside the tribe, there was land was divided up in families and clans. And it was multiplicity of dividing, divisions. And there were more landmarks set up within the tribes. Those were to be permanent in the families also. Now, if a man became so poor that he could no longer hold on to his land, he could sell the land. But in the year of Jubilee, it reverted back to the original family. It was permanent. At the year of Jubilee, those boundaries were permanent. And when God, at the beginning, when he initiated going into the promised land, He said those boundaries don't, well, it's in Proverbs where he says don't move the boundaries. Just have it continue on. Now here here we come to the message this morning. Is it too much of a stretch to say that the original boundaries or practices or commands set in the beginning of the occupation of the new covenant should remain there? Does God care how land remains divided up? Or does he really care about following through with the original designs and commands? What do you think? I think this morning, Tim isn't here. Oh, there he is. He had a song about change. The second song he picked was a song about change. He said, we live in a time of change actually people always have lived in a time of change but with modern communication change has accelerated could we say a thousand times more change than it was in 500 years ago i don't know what for number to put on it but change has accelerated so drastically that i think if change would all of a sudden stop we would all go into shock because we have come a, a Accustomed to continual change. Now we would all agree, change is good. Some change is good. We like more efficient ways of doing things, more effective ways so we can do more things with, where's, where's, where's Berlin? More things with less effort, right? <laughs> we like that. That's why we live in a culture of instant gratification. When I started working 30 years ago, started working, well, away. I <laughs> um, went out in the job, and when we were done with that job, I had to look for a payphone or an Amish shanty somewhere and call back and get my next orders. That's how communication was back then. One time, some of you have read that poem that's going around here about commons was a humming. They lost brother Cap. One time, I lost brother Cap on the road, on a rural interstate highway, and it stopped. Well, I stopped it before it stopped, and we walked. There was nothing to do. You're on a truck, no communication. Start walking along interstate highway until you get help. So we like change. Now we have phones. I' uh, talking to my dad in law this last week, and he yes, when he was a boy, Brewbreaker Valley Road was not paved. it's a gravel road. Only the main roads were paved. Um, my dad tells me that he went to uh, court my mom it came up north on 501. It was a little bumpy road through the mountains. That's what it was. So we like change. In fact, many of us. Many of you would not be here without modern health care. So we like change. Some change is not so good. Um, between the 60s and the 90s, violent crime increased 300%. It was just going up and up and up. And Bill Clinton, the, uh, the government decided they need to do something, and they enacted stricter sentencing for criminals and the crime rate dropped, but the prison population soared. We are somewhat safer today because there's two million people behind bars in the United States. It's amazing. And we could say, well, why is that? There's a lot of breakdown of the family unit because there's a breakdown of respect and you can go on and what all that reason is. And now we're, of course, arriving at shocking levels of change in the uh, LGBT area, arena, rather. Now, here's a question for you. Should the church change? Should we accommodate ourselves to the culture that we live in? It's pretty quiet. What do you think? Yes and no. No. Heard of one? No. Okay. Everyone, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Everything changed to a point. We'll get to that. Thank you. Should we accommodate ourselves to the culture we find ourselves in? Question? Yes? No? Maybe so? Here's another one. The Bible was for their time, but we, now we live in a different culture in a very different time. Now we get a little more sticky situation, don't we? Should we adapt ourselves to our culture and our time? Should we change our worship style to contemporary because that's what the culture is accustomed to. Contemporary music. Our culture is accustomed to that. So we live in a church culture that has done that. Done that. Should we reduce our sermon to 20 minutes a simple sound bite because the culture now has a reduced attention span? Well, about by now, some of you wish I would be sitting down maybe. But... Should we change our practices because the culture will not understand? There's a quote from the Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up. David Pershull writes, The early Christians were ultra-conservative, equating change with error. Since they expected no new revelation after the apostles, they summarily rejected any new teaching that did not come from the apostles. So change was equated with error. Now, we, we, we're we not getting into the cultural areas. You know, to understand there's, there's, there's a distinction, but we're talking about Scripture. Today, it is not as simple as it was maybe back then in the early church. The early church, if it's new, it's wrong. Well, now here we are 2,000 years later, and change did come, change has come, and it did affect the church. And error has become the new orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. We heard all these new terminologies lately. Here's a new one. New orthodoxy is actually riddled with error what we now call orthodoxy, is actually full of error. So, as a ship at sea, much careful and continual examination must be given. You must check the instruments continually and carefully to check for variations from the true route. And many small corrections need to be made from the analysis of these instruments. And sometimes a ship will discover that in the direction that they are going, they will never arrive at a desired destination. Of course, this is the instrument that we have. Sometimes observant occupants of a ship will recognize that a ship is going the wrong direction but the, um, the uh, personnel or the um, management of the ship will not recognize that error and will continue a course. Any occupant of that ship that wishes to go to the right direction will at some point need to jump ship and get on another one. Here is a thought, and I'm not sure we, can, if I can articulate it, but in an article about musical change in a church setting, the author observes this. He said it is important to understand that a move towards contemporary worship is more is not a mere change of music. If a church shifts from their regular worship, contemporary worship, it is not a mere change of music. It is a it is accompanied by a change in a church's overall philosophy. Now what that means is you can't usually address just the externals or the surface things because they are the result of a philosophy underneath that actually the outgrowth is there. And that philosophy underneath is sometimes pretty hard to determine or to um, expose. Let's say it that way. The difficulty is often in not exposing the externals, but exposing the philosophy or the thinking that brings the externals. That change in philosophy of that music will exert itself in hundreds of other different ways because that philosophy that brought the change of music will also bring change in many other areas because it's a belief system underneath Change with our culture. Adapt to our culture. Adjust the Bible to fit our culture. That is what is happening today. In um, Jeremiah 6.16, Israel was apostatizing, and judgment was imminent. They were at a very, very bad place. They were headed to a major collision course. And God knew it. So God tells them, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, stand in the crossroad, and see, stop, look, and consider, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein. God says, go to the crossroad, stop, think, and now walk in the old paths. And ye shall find rest for your souls. Now I heard that rest for your souls before. That is the Lord Jesus taking it right out of that Old Testament context and applying it to himself but they said we will not walk therein and they were judged for it so whether you are in the way and are tempted to depart or whether you are out of the way and exhorted to seek it the point is there is an old path there is a way that does not change Not with time, not with culture, not with new or novel ideas, not even with success. God has never been concerned about numbers. He's always been concerned about faith and truth, about a people. And so, what does that have to do with the holy kiss? A long introduction. The kiss of charity, as Peter puts it. Actually, quite a lot. We don't seem to be living in a day when the gospel is advancing boldly in the face of darkness and heathenism. Now, is that our fault? Yeah, some of it is. But we live in a day when darkness and heathenism is overtaking the church. Where can you look and not see more and more the world's methods adapted to propagate the gospel or bring people to the church? It's all over. The church has been adapting to modern culture and turning the church into a marketplace, a mall, if you will. And people come to church with a consumerism attitude. I'm unique. I have unique desires. And I want them fulfilled. And instead of forming a community of believers, we form a conglomerate of individual Christians. Instead of, like the song goes, people of the living God, we have changed it to persons of the living God. Give the people what they want instead of bringing them to the community of God's people. Here's what one preacher says about the Holy Kiss. The Holy Kiss was a cultural expression of peace and goodwill towards someone else, a token of friendship and unity. It was a social custom with Christian content and meaning infused into it. But it would be wrong to impute mystical value to this actual action. And we would do well to function in our day with the cultural norms of a sect. Acceptability. We need to look at what Paul is emphasizing and not get distracted into something like the holy kiss or feet washing. He said that, which is a meaningless activity in our day. Charles Hodge says this, The spirit of the command... The command is greet each other with a holy kiss. The spirit of the command is what Christians should express. Is that Christians should express their mutual love in the way sanctioned by the age and the community in which they live. Express your love in the way your community does it. Focus on the sincerity and purity of heart in greeting. Not the exact external formula of movements. As if there is something magical about the actual activity you do. So, if Paul were writing the scripture today, he would say this. Greet ye one another with a holy fist bump. That fist bump um, communicates... Acceptance, camaraderie. I go to New York City and go to deliveries, and there are these these, these uh, I don't know which part of the world they come from. They're all over the place up there, and they come and hi, buddy, boom, and it makes you feel like you're one of them, although I'm not. Well, not in that sense. They're uh, they're part of the human race and uh, and that, but uh, yeah. Express your love in the way your community does it. So, if we're open to change, let's start fist bumping here and express our love. Because it's the heart that matters, right? Not the external. Yeah, if we focus on what Paul seemed to be emphasizing, according to these preachers, that of love and goodwill and of friendship and unity, then that would be a perfect, valid application of those five verses of Scripture. So why don't we do it? Anyone tell me? Why don't we? It's, of course, a um, not theoretical, but a rhetoric question. I will try to explain the difference between cultural adaptability and biblical commands now. Yesterday we were at a wedding. I'm not sure what early weddings, early Christian weddings were like. But I'm sure it wasn't quite like the wedding we had yesterday. But there are essentials in a wedding that do not change. Have not a change from the original design. Jesus said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. One home and one authority structure has been forsaken. Actually, in this case, two. Two homes and authority structures have been forsaken, and they come together, and they commit themselves for life, and there's a new home established, and that home, that authority structure, is permanent for life. And if God blesses that union with children, the children will do the same thing. It is part of um, what does not change from its original design, but weddings do change. They differ culturally. God never told us how to perform a wedding. He doesn't say how to vow, or what to vow, whether we should eat before, or after, or at all. How many in the bridal party? How to introduce a couple after a ceremony? That is something we need to formulate. something we do. And it's something that changes over time. So, there are things that change. And so, weddings will vary according to the social customs of the people, and they change over time. What else changes? Don't see anybody wearing robes this morning. When's the last time you wore a robe? Why not? We're pretty sure Jesus wore a robe. Talks about his tunic that there they, they was woven from top to bottom in one piece. Whatever Jesus wore, that coat that he wore, but we don't wear robes. But I'm going to adapt the argument given by the commentators about the Holy Kiss, and I'm going to change it to clothing. He said Christians should wear clothes in a way sanctioned by the age and community in which they live. Stress in the way your community does it. Focus on the sincerity and purity of heart, not on the external formula. Have we missed it somewhere? Why don't we do that? Now, when it comes to communion and baptism, most Christians have no problem Keeping an outdated and unusual practice alive. When it comes to those two areas. They keep the baptism and the communion service. And they just keep it right into a modern culture. Which does not understand what they're doing. Yes, we know the modern culture doesn't do it. But Christ has commanded it. And we will do it. We look to the Bible for our direction, not the culture. We will go out into the culture and we will win them and we will bring them in and we will do the stuff that the Bible says we should do. That's what God says. But when it comes to certain things like the headship veiling, well, that's not cultural. Feet washing isn't either. And the Christian greeting, which is the topic this morning. Now we want to evoke culture to get direction from that, for those things. And as it extends, as time goes on, we extend culture to dress, to women leadership, feminism, cultural views of the family, And the change just goes on and on as the church adapts itself to the culture. And as culture moves on, and as the greater church moves on, we become more and more isolated and odd and peculiar. That's us. Welcome. A counter-cultural organization. Hopefully in many ways, as well as this one. The Holy Kiss, as we read it, it is commanded five times. Everyone, even the commentators, agree it is a commandment. That's not a question. It is a commandment. And like all of God's commandments, it is a blessed commandment. It's a situation in which you... And me, having been hell-bound sinners, having been saved by the blood of Jesus, responded to the grace and love that God showed to us, we were changed. And then we were brought together into a body, into a community of believers called the church. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. We love God. We love each other. Right? And as we meet, we keep God's commandments and we greet one another with a kiss of charity. Just as baptism is a symbol or a token, just like communion, it's a symbol. Just like foot washing, So, the Christian greeting is a token. It's an external symbol of an inward reality of the heart. And as such, it reinforces externally that inward reality that is already there. Now, wait, you say. I know some people who actually practice it who have none of that reality in their hearts. It's just a dry ritual. In fact, for some, it becomes a tool to judge others. Is that true? It is. But there are people who get baptized who know nothing of the grace of God. They are still hell-bound religious folks, except now they're hell-bound baptized religious folks. Or communion. Many take communion who have no communion with the true God of heaven. It is a ritual, empty and dry, except for a little bit of moisture from a cup. Listen, if everything that could be called Christian, if everything everything that has been called Christian has been abused, everything you can think of, that does not mean that we forsake it. It just means we enter into God's heart as we obey it. Just because something is abusable does not mean it is disposable. As Paul admonishes in 1 Corinthians 5.8, and he's talking to them about their improper usage, he said, Let us keep the feast, the communion, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Get rid of the improper usage, but keep it the way it was intended to keep. I remember when I first began or first was moved by God to practice the Christian greeting. I was in a church setting where the ministry practiced it. And a few conscientious people from the congregation did. But they were sort of odd. But God had saved me and done a work in my heart. And a number of us young Christians fellowship with each other. And we saw this scriptural directive. We saw how the woman's, woman's veiling was once in the Bible, but the Christian greeting was five times. What are we going to do? Our hearts were full of gratitude for God for His salvation. We loved God and we loved His Word. We really did want to obey God. But almost no one obeyed this commandment. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you're there now. Now a number of us Zella's young ones began to practice it. In that setting. It was hard. It was uphill. It went against the flow. It surprised our friends and our fellow church members. Now, as I look back, my motives were not completely pure. I had a significant amount of spiritual pride in me. I was immature, and I was largely unsanctified. But my heart wanted to obey God. He was my Savior. Before, I was afraid to die. Now, I was not afraid to die. My sins, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross, and I bore it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, Oh my soul. That's where we were at. And we wanted to obey God. And in this case, the embarrassment I endured... The uh, what were other people think was small in comparison to what God had done for us. Then we went to another church setting in which it was joyfully practiced. Not only was it easy, it was seemed natural. Normal. It was a natural way of expressing the biblical love we had for each other with a pure heart fervently, and that became a normal part of my life for 25 years. Now here we are, 25 years later, and God has no grandchildren. He has children. Each generation will need to experience the transforming work of God for themselves, just like I did. The next generation will need to experience the same thing. And each generation will need to voluntarily and joyfully embrace the word of God by faith. And begin in the next generation to walk out in loving obedience to God. We, now we're called the older generation. We will protect, we will guide we will instruct, but finally, it'll be the next generation who will be the next church. And there are many doctrines and teaching to be passed on, but the focus on this morning is the Holy Kiss. But let's look at the command a little more specifically. First is the word greet or salute. Now, there's nothing unique about Greeting. Every culture has its greetings. Right, Tim? Every culture has its greetings. People have always greeted each other. People always greet each other. And uh, the King James Version translates this Greek word into the English word salute about as much as is the word greet. And here's a few examples. I'll just read them. In Mark 15, when the soldiers were mocking Jesus, they put purple robe on him, and they put the crown of thorns on him, and then it says they began to salute him mockingly. Hail, King of the Jews! Matthew 5:47, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He said, If ye salute your brethren only... What do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Now that word salute is the word greet. It's the same word. Greet, same word in Greek. And verse in Luke ten four: Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute or greet no man by the way. So it is customary to greet people and it's an insult not to greet people. Uh, not to greet can be an insult. And to think of greetings and salutations, I just thought of soldiers. The soldier's salute to a superior is very important. In fact, it's not optional. Am I correct with that? Anybody here at Spin? Okay, that's right. You, it's not optional. That is absolutely required. It's a major lack of honor and respect to refuse or refrain from saluting a superior. I remember reading in a case of years ago of life on a military base where um, where people lived with their families on this base. And this low-ranking soldier of some kind was out with his daughter on the stroller, putting his daughter on the stroller. And he was bending over, attending to her and something. And out of the corner of his eye, he saw a superior officer walk up. And of course, his training all went right in. But he has something in his hand yet, so he just popped it into his mouth and saluted, which is pacifier in his mouth. Because you do that, it's a command. Absolute. No exceptions. When this nation, the new United States, was formed, one of the questions was how do you address this new office we created called the President? They didn't want anything to do with what the King of England, um, but of his, his majesty, where it gave him a title. That actually led to him assuming himself the divine right to rule. They wanted nothing to do of that. So it was a long discussion. Wow, how do we, how do we address, how do we address this new office called the President? And they finally came to a simple conclusion. When you address the President of the United States, you just simply say, Mr. President. That's the proper way to address him. That's the way you're supposed to address him. It was decided. It was written down. To do it any other way, you come and say, hey, Obama, it would be extremely disrespectful. That would be a fist bump. You don't do that to the president. So, salute. Greet one another. It is proper. It is honorable. It is respectful for God's people to greet one another. But then, don't just greet whatever way you want to. God has actually given us his word of how he wants his people to greet each other. Very specifically. With a holy kiss. Now let's look at the actual greeting. First is the word holy. Holy. Uh, This can mean a few things. First of all, it's not a sensual kiss. It shall, by no way, shape, or form, arouse unholy sensuality. I think that's pretty well self-explanatory. I don't need to explain that. But that is absolute. But the second and primary meaning is that of the heart attitude and motive behind the kiss. For a kiss to be holy, it needs to come from a holy person with holy motives. You know, when Judas kissed Jesus when he betrayed him, that was not a holy kiss. Jesus did, Judas did not love Jesus and his motives were anything but for his well-being. Have you been sanctified and set apart for the Lord? Are you genuine in your love? Do you love your brothers and sisters with an unfeigned love? Is a real, genuine, authentic love behind that token of love, the kiss? Salute one another with a holy kiss. Then is the word kiss. This is the Greek word philema, which means a kiss. But the word philema come from a whole family of words that have the word love infused into it. Philio means love in Greek. And the word, the name Philemon, you know Philemon, that little book of Philemon, that was a person's name. That means friendly. Um, Philadelphia means a city of brotherly love. Philadelphia. Ia, I think it's a city part. Philadelphia. Philanthropy means love for mankind, where people give large sums of money for the benefit of mankind. And something for you ladies. Philandros. Anybody know what that word means? Philandros. I thought some of you may have studied that. It means hmm, love your husbands. (laughs) It means love of man, particular one man in Titus. So the actual kiss is linked inseparably with love. You cannot separate the two. It's a kiss of charity or love between people who have a tight and very common bond. The bonds go beyond age, status, education, intellect, and wealth, or success. The old greet the young. The rich greet the poor. The preacher and the youth meet together with this token of love. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it is just as level with the Christian greeting. Now the early Christians greeted each other with a kiss. And here is out of apost- apostolic constitution and it has some numbers behind it. And this is an interesting interesting thing. Um, just as soon as you get the, the import of this. The kiss, talk about the holy kiss, is distinguished or is different from an ordinary greeting Of natural affection and friendship. Okay? You have your ordinary greetings. Where you come home and you greet your wife. Or you greet your children. Or whatever. It's a normal greeting. Or you greet somebody on the street. You have your normal greetings. Here it says the kiss is different than that. The Christian greeting is different. From an ordinary greeting of natural affection or friendship. It belongs to God and the new society of his children. It is specifically Christian. So it is a holy kiss in the sense it is specifically for God's people among his people. Justin Martyr informs us in his account of the religious assemblies of the Christians. And he writes, reading here, Prayers being ended, we salute one another with a kiss. And then the bread and cup is brought to the president, etc. Now here's a commentary on the occasions mentioned by Justin. And here's Justin again, martyr. said, the men and the women do not kiss each other promiscuously. The men salute the men only, and the women kiss none other but their own sex, as may be known by their manner of sitting in the public assemblies. And that's described in the Apostolic Constitution. Denny Keniston described a church that he attended to in the in the eighties. It was probably a Mennonite church, apparently, where he observed the older men and the older ladies greet each other with the Christian greeting, but the younger ones and the youth did not. Why do you think that might be? Why do you think that might happen here? You came to church to be challenged, didn't you? Well, I have some questions, I mean I have some answers maybe, why that might be. And then I want you to come up with any other reasons why that might be. Some here might question whether we should keep it. It's just an early custom that sort of just kept on going. Maybe some of, some of us here believe that. Some may find it difficult to begin after becoming a Christian because it's different and it's new. Some may find it difficult because Others in their age group don't. It makes me odd. We just hug instead. Some just may not like to do it, period. It doesn't feel natural or normal. What other reason would anyone have why it may not be practice? Anybody have any, any that I would miss? Did I miss anything or is that a, did I cover a lot of them? I'll bump my glasses. Okay, go ahead. Fear. We'll get to that a little later. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Adonai Judson tells of his first woman convert in the mission field. It was in a culture where the women wore layers and layers of jewelry. It was an extremely decorative culture. Especially necklaces, lots of them, and bracelets, lots of them. So, he had his first female convert. As he prepared to got her prepared for baptism, he instructed her. Hesitantly. Not knowing how she's going to respond to this. But he felt compelled by the Spirit of God to instruct her from the Word of God about jewelry. And how the Bible forbids the wearing of jewelry. So he instructed her of God's word that forbade jewelry. And he directed her to take it off. Challenged her to take it off. Before baptism. That was completely unnormal for her culture. But God's word says it. Her culture had been practicing it for generations. So she fingered her necklaces for a little bit, and then she took it off. She said, Jesus means more to me than my jewelry. And she took it off, and the battle for Adonai and Judson was won right there. It had to be won right up front. Of course, Adonai and Judson's main battle became then after the missionaries kept on coming from America and they wore jewelry and then he had a lot of trouble because right at that time in the 1800s early mid 1800s jewelry was just coming in vogue with the Christians apparently when he would have left at home apparently it didn't seem like it was so much of an issue but as they sent missionaries over And so here his woman gave everything up, not everything yet, he gave everything up, including something really, really special to her, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here come these ladies from America, and they don't want to give up their jewelry. Do you have the same heart as this pioneer of faith did almost 200 years ago? Is God's word worth to you more than what people or culture think? Okay, some practical direction here. This is probably an issue more for the ladies than for men, but it is difficult to hug first and greet with a kiss. I think an embrace when you greet a loved one is great, but unless I'm missing something, probably need to greet with the Christian greeting first and then embrace. Number two, kiss on the cheeks, not on the lips. I understand there are some circles that they are instructed to kiss on the lips. The Bible does not specifically address how. So I will give you some direction. Kiss on the cheek, please. Where should you greet? at Paul B, at the grocery store, the neighborhood garage sale or the farm sale. I'm not saying you can't. But I think the holy kiss is reserved mostly for intimate occasions, church and our homes, and other places where God's people meet. While we will not change God's word to fit the culture, we need to be sensitive to some degree what the culture thinks. And the holy kiss can be misinterpreted to mean something completely other than holy. So be sensitive to your surroundings. Now I've heard strong criticism against practicing the holy kiss at all on this point. But I think it is an overreaction. And I'll explain why. We as a family were studying how to interpret body language. And we were watching this video that gave some of this instruction. And in this video it showed two world figures, two men and their wives coming together with a greeting. One was George W. Bush. I don't remember who the other person was. Anybody remember? Hmm? Tony Blair? that right, okay. I thought I thought it was Tony Blair, I wasn't sure. Two the Prime Minister of England and the President of the United States and their wives coming together, greeting each other. The men greet each other with a handshake. The women greet each other with a kiss on each cheek. Then both men greeted the other wives with a kiss. Not each other. On national television, people kissing each other. It's not as unusual as you think. It's not a good argument to not use it. Number four in the practical answers. If you meet a stranger in one of those intimate settings that you don't know whether they're accustomed to the Christian greeting. You're not sure? Give them a hearty handshake. Don't embarrass them or shock them needlessly. Like many other things, the greeting must be taught and then embraced individually. It can be a shock to those exposed to it for the first time. What I end up doing mostly is greeting those I know well and those I don't know for sure, that that I don't know for sure, I just refrain from practicing it. That's a pretty well-safe way. I do want my greeting to be warm and welcoming, not a shock to someone. Number five, if you're in a setting where many of your peers do not practice it, begin to practice it With them. Most times it will be a little awkward at first. But if you greet them. Warmly. With a smile. With a friendly name. And a holy kiss. In time. It will become normal. And in time. It will become expected of you. Your friends will expect that of you. That's what I found in my former setting. When I was practicing in a setting that wasn't completely, it was familiar but not normal. That in time, my friend knew what to expect. And that will happen over time. If they resist or avoid you or make snide remarks about you for doing that, love them anyway. But maybe you should get new friends. Maybe you should. That's not how friends treat each other. So, where Christian people love each other with a pure heart fervently, it is but natural to salute one another with a holy kiss. So, my exhortation this morning, I know this was a very unusual message. um, Yet, I think it's a necessary one. Let us not remove the ancient landmarks which God has set up for his people. So may God bless you.